I am truly grateful to get to worship with you today. I've very much been looking forward to the time that we'll spend together today. And I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Wynn for his gracious invitation to stand in his pulpit and share the Word of God with you. The message today will come from Hebrews chapter 4. You have your Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. The title of the message today is How to Avoid Falling Short of God's Rest. Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. For indeed, we have had good news proclaimed to us, just as they also. But the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere in this way concerning the seventh day. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news proclaimed to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again determines a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Let's pray. Our God and Father, please help me to preach in such a way that your son would be seen as glorious and beautiful. And I ask, Father, that you would grant us ears to hear eyes to see, minds to comprehend divine truth. God, we believe there is in these words a message for this people. And I pray, God, that I would be a mouthpiece and not a hindrance to that message being communicated. God, come by your word. Transform the hearts of this your people. We ask it for the glory of your dear son. Amen. You can be seated. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. You take a vacation. But when you get back home, 
Somehow you feel more tired than you did when you left. Have you ever had a vacation like that? You wore yourself out on vacation. So now you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation. Well, the Christian life can kind of be like that sometimes. See, as believers, we're those who have heard the call of Christ from Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And we do have rest. Jesus gives us rest from the impossible task of trying to work our way into God's favor. We rest in the person and work of Christ and we have peace with God. But I'm just going to have to be honest with you. For somebody who's supposed to be at rest, I sure do grow weary sometimes. The struggle with my own sinful desires, the struggle against the temptations of the enemy is never ceasing. Amen? Never ceasing. My own need for growth in Christ-likeness calls for constant energy and effort. And making disciples is glorious work, but you're never finished. It's a difficult work. And as believers, we rest in the finished work of Christ. But all this resting sometimes wears me out. The point is this. We have not yet entered into full, complete rest. Like the old hymn says, we'll work till Jesus comes. There is a rest Full, complete rest, but we haven't entered into it yet. The intention of the author in this text is to make sure none among us would fall short of entering that full and complete rest. Hebrews was written to a church of Jewish folk. They were feeling pressure to return to Judaism, the religion of the Jewish people. The author of Hebrews writes to convince them that Jesus and the new covenant is superior to Moses and the old covenant. Like any church, the recipients of this letter included both those who were genuinely born again and some who we're not genuinely born again. And the author writes to say to all of them, don't abandon the faith, for to do so is to abandon hope. Now, this is an awful lot of text to cover in one message. I wouldn't normally try to, especially in Hebrews, I normally wouldn't try to tackle this much text in one message, but I want you to see there is a message in all of these verses that we won't be able to see if we divide them up. I want us to get the big picture that the author's trying to convey in all of these words. So I'm going to kind of have to paint with broad strokes and I won't be able to answer every issue and deal with every detail of the text. But I want very much for us to hear the message of the author in these verses. There are three things the author of Hebrews says in these verses. And 
when we see those things together, the message, I believe, will become very clear. Here's the first thing he tells us. The promise of entering God's rest remains. The promise of entering God's rest remains. Verse 1. Therefore, let us fear while a promise of rest, excuse me, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Now, this is a warning. But you'll notice at the heart of the warning is the words, a promised remains of entering his rest. So before I deal with the warning, what the warning is, we need to establish that the author is telling us this warning is based on the reality that there is a promise of entering God's rest that still remains. In other words, some versions say still standing. It's still valid. The promise is still available to God's people. So we need to establish that that promise remains. And he actually does that for us beginning in verse 6. So we're going to look at verse 6. There are two things we need to establish under this first point. One is this. We need to establish that this promise of rest is still a valid promise for the people of God today. Secondly, we need to explain what we mean by God's rest. So first, verse 6. He establishes two facts in verse 6. One, it remains for some to enter it, which you see from the verse before is God's rest. The second thing he establishes in verse 6 is that the Exodus generation failed to enter God's rest because of disobedience. Something I failed to mention is that... Um, this portion of scripture is a continuation of a discussion began back in chapter 3, verse 7, which is basically an exposition of Psalm 95, which you heard read earlier, verses 7 through 11. And he's using the example of the Exodus generation and their failure to enter into God's rest in the promised land to warn us of not making the same mistake and falling because of unbelief and disobedience. But what he says in verse six is, okay, God's rest was not nullified when the Exodus generation failed to enter because of unbelief and disobedience. The promise of rest was not nullified when that first generation of Israelites who were delivered from Egypt failed to enter. You see what it says in verse 6. Even though they failed to enter because of disobedience, it still remains for some to enter it. You with me? Therefore, verse 7, he again determines a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, he's quoting there from verse uh, Verse 7 of Psalm 95. But think about this. Okay. God said some are still going to enter rest even though that first generation failed. So he says for another time today. He appoints another 
time to enter his rest. The word today doesn't mean a 24 hour period. It refers to an era of opportunity. There is another era of opportunity to enter into the rest of God. And he said this to David centuries after. That generation failed to enter the land. And centuries after, the next generation did, in fact, enter the land. What's the point? The point is, he says to this generation in David's time, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He's warning them not to make the mistake that the Exodus generation made. Now, why would he give them the same warning? Because they have the same opportunity. They have the opportunity to enter God's rest. And he doesn't want them to fail to enter God's rest because of unbelief and disobedience. Here's the point I want you to see. The rest God promises was not nullified because of the first generation's disobedience. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. What then, if some did not believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? May it never be. Okay, so the promise of entering God's rest wasn't nullified when the first generation failed. Notice this also. The promise of entering God's rest wasn't fulfilled when the next generation did enter rest in the land. Notice what it says in verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Okay, why is God offering rest to the generation in David's day? Because the promise of entering God's rest wasn't fulfilled when the generation of Israelites entered and occupied the land. Think about this. During David's reign, when God spoke the words offering rest, this was the height of Israel's glory days. Right? They did have, quote, rest in the land. Rest from their enemies. They were at peace and prosperity. But still God is offering that generation, what? Rest. Why? Because his promise of rest wasn't fulfilled simply because they were in the land, occupying the land. Here's what I need you to see. Rest that is offered by God is not equal to living in the land of Canaan. That is not the rest God originally intended. Did he intend to give them rest in the land? Yes, but that was not the sum total of the rest. God was inviting his people to enter into. So the promise of God's rest hasn't been nullified and it hasn't been fulfilled. Then that means what? The promise of rest must still remain. Verse nine. So. There remains a Sabbath rest. For the people of God. The promise wasn't nullified. The promise has not yet been fulfilled. So the promise of entering God's rest remains. Now. We have to answer the question. What is God's rest? What is meant by God's rest? You'll notice in verse nine, he calls it Sabbath rest. Do you catch that? Sabbath rest. That takes us back to verses three through five. Glance back there with me. In verses three through five, what you'll notice if you pay attention, in verse three, 
And in verse 5, he quotes the same words from Psalm 95, verse 11. Do you catch that? In 3, he quotes Psalm 95, 11. He quotes it again in verse 5. And right smack in the middle between those, look what it says. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken somewhere in this way concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. So we have two quotes from Psalm 95, 11, verse 3 and verse 5. Right in the middle, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Now, here's a really good question. Why? Why does he sandwich this quote from Genesis 2, verse 2 about God's seventh day rest? Right in between these two quotes, he says the same thing twice. Why does he do that? What's going on here? Here's the reason why. He wants us to equate the promise of rest that he made to the original generation of Israelites and to David's generation. He wants us to connect that to Genesis 2-2. In other words, he wants us to see that the rest he has always offered his people. The first generation, David's generation, and our generation has always been about entering into his Sabbath rest. It's never been about just having rest in the promised land. That's why the rest remains, because it's always been more than that. Rest in the promised land is just a shadow. It's just a picture of the ultimate rest God is inviting us to, to have. And that's rest, the same kind of rest that he has. It is an, listen, it is an invitation to enter into the rest he himself enjoys. I don't know if you noticed, but when he talks about rest in these verses, it's always God's rest. Did you see it? In verse 1, it's his rest. Verse 3, God says, my rest. Verse 5, God says, my rest. He's not saying, I'm offering you your own rest. No, no, no. He's inviting us to enter into the rest he himself enjoys. His own Sabbath rest, which he has been enjoying since the seventh day. Did you know in Genesis 2, the only of the days of creation that it doesn't say evening and morning were the sixth day? The only day is the seventh day. It does not say evening and morning was the seventh day. Why? Because when God entered into his Sabbath rest on the seventh day, that rest is still going on. In other words, God still hasn't resumed the work of creation. He's inviting us to enter into his Sabbath rest. Now, what is that? What did God do on the seventh day? He rested from his creation, creating work. He rested from his labor in creating. It doesn't say he didn't do anything. He rested from his creating labor, and he did what? He delighted in all that he had made. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw all he had made, and behold, it was very good. God's Sabbath rest. He ceased his labor in creation to delight in all that he had done. And it was very good. So to enjoy God's rest is to cease from our labors 
and delight in God and delight in all that he is and all that he's done. Think about it. It's the rest enjoyed by Adam and Eve before the fall. Delighting in all that God has made. Delighting in perfect, sweet fellowship with God without the labor and stress and striving and strain of life under the fall. And to say rest remains, did you catch that in verse 9? There remains a rest. That indicates that what he's primarily talking about is a rest that is still future. It remains to be fully entered into at this point. How do we know that? Look at verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, if we had already entered fully into God's rest, then we would have ceased from our labor the same way God did. And as I've said already, we do have rest to an extent in Jesus. We rest fully in the finished work of Christ. Thank God. We rest from the pressure of trying to earn God's favor, but we labor still. Don't we? We still labor in the battle against sin. We still labor in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. It takes energy and effort. We still labor in the work of making disciples. Yes, we rest in what Christ has done, but we still labor at this point. But, but, when the Lord returns in power and glory to reign forever over the new heaven and the new earth, we who are his will enter into full and complete rest. We will cease forever from the striving and from the straining and from the stressing of this life and we will enjoy God's fullness forever. That's the promise. That's what he's offering. The promise of entering God's rest remains. But knowing that some have failed to enter God's rest, the author of Hebrews gives us a warning. Here's the second thing he says to us. Fear lest you fall short of God's rest. So first he said the promise of entering God's rest remains. Next he says fear lest you fall short of God's rest. Now we're back to verse 1. Therefore, in light of what he's just said in verses 18 and 19, to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, because some have failed to enter God's rest, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. What does it mean to fear? In this case, the best way to explain it means to take very seriously. Fear, lest you should fall short of God's rest. Take very seriously the possibility that you could fall short of, which means to fail to reach or to be found coming up short of entering into God's rest. Fear. Take very seriously. 
the possibility that you could be found or be judged having come short of entering into God's rest. Let me just tell you this. If that were not a possibility, there would be no need for this warning. Do I believe in the perseverance of the saints? Absolutely. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But this warning is here because it is a real possibility that some within the hearing of my voice could come up short on the day of judgment. Look at verse 2. He's giving a reason why this warning needs to be heard. For indeed we have had good news proclaimed to us just as they also. But the word that was heard did not profit those who are not united with faith among those who heard. Here's the idea. That Exodus generation heard the good news, not the exact same good news that we have, but they heard the promise of rest. Joshua and Caleb said to the people, the land before us is all that God has promised. God has promised to give it to us. We are well able to take it. Let's just hear his voice and obey. Good news. All that God said is true. It lays before us. God has given it to us. What's the problem? Well, verse 2 says, The word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. What that essentially means is, they didn't hear the good news with the same faith that Joshua and Caleb had. So Joshua and Caleb were the only ones of that generation to enter. They heard the good news, but they didn't hear it in faith. Their hearing wasn't united with faith. Now he says, indeed, we have heard the good news proclaimed to us just as they also did. You and I are people who hear regularly the good news of Jesus. From this pulpit, week in and week out, Sunday morning, Sunday night, the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. You have heard the gospel. The warning is, if you fail to combine the hearing with faith, if faith doesn't unite with hearing, you will fall short of entering God's rest. And I want you to notice something. If you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 19, he says they were not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. Verse 2, the, the, the hearing of the good news didn't profit them because it wasn't united with what? Faith. So the, the problem with this generation was faith, un, a lack of faith or unbelief. But I want you to notice something else. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Excuse me, verse 18. To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were what? Disobedient. Look at verse 6, chapter 4. It remains for some to enter it. Those who formerly had good news proclaimed in, enter, uh, failed to enter because of what? Disobedience. Verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of what? Disobedience. So the promise is... Faith, a lack of faith or unbelief. And on the other hand, he says it's disobedience. So which is it? 
Did they not enter rest because they failed to believe or because they failed to obey? Yes. The point is this. They didn't have genuine faith and the evidence of that was a failure to obey. Faith without works is what? Dead. How do we know they didn't believe? Because they didn't obey. If they truly trusted the word of the living God, they would have obeyed him. So the kind of faith we're talking about, hearing the good news and failing to have the kind of faith that is evidenced by obedience. The warning is, if you don't persevere in faith that is evidenced by obedience, you will come short of entering God's rest. Think about this. He is warning people who are being pressured to return to the religion of Judaism because of persecution primarily. And he wants to say to them, I need you to know the consequences of not continuing in faith and obedience. I need you to know what happens if you're like this generation and this good news you've heard isn't met with obedient faith. Believing obedience. It's a warning. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I want you to think about something. How are we as Christians, as believers, to think about warnings like this? We think, well, I mean, those warnings are really for people who are not Christians. Well, they are for people who are not Christians. But I want you to think about something. The warnings given in the Bible, such as this, the warning of not persevering in faith, the warning about falling short, I want you to think of them like this. They are a gift of the grace of God. My daughter's going to have a little one. When that little one gets old enough to reach up for things, she's going to reach up for everything. She may toddle up to the stove one day and reach up to grab a pot to see what's in it. And that pot may be really hot. And what's mama going to do? No, 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 baby. That'll burn you bad. What's that? It's a warning. That's an act of grace. What's she doing? She's protecting her child by giving her a warning. Listen, that's what God's doing. God is protecting us as his children by reminding us, don't go there, it'll hurt you. Thank God for the reminders that chase away the complacency that is inherent in our fallen nature. How many of you have figured out already inherent in your fallen nature is a complacency towards spiritual things that you need a constant reminder to be diligent. Don't take for granted. 
the work of grace in your heart. We need warnings like this one in Hebrews 2, 1 to 3. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels provide, uh, proved unalterable and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Did you notice when the author of Hebrews is giving this warning, warning not to drift away? He said, we. Now, did he not believe he was really a Christian? No, he believed he was really a Christian. This is not a warning for them. This is a warning for we and them. The promise of entering God's rest remains, but it is possible to fall short of it. So what response does that call for from us? The answer is in the third thing the author of Hebrews says to us in these verses. Here it is. Be diligent to enter God's rest. Be diligent to enter God's rest. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. The fact that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God that we have not yet fully entered into means we must be diligent to enter it. The word diligent means to make every effort. We must make every effort to enter that rest. That's not what I said. That's what the text says. Make every effort to enter that rest. Why is such an effort called for? Well, he says in verse 11, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. In other words, so that we don't make the same mistake that that first generation of Israelites, the Exodus generation made. They disobeyed, lacked genuine faith. He said, look, we need to Make every effort to enter God's rest so that we don't let the same thing happen to us that happened to them. Now, I could have preached this without using verses 12 and 13 about the word of God. I included them for a very important reason, because 99.9% of the time that I have heard those two verses preached, I have heard them preached independently by themselves, and they were not at all connected to the context that they're given in. So I, I can't cover them in detail, but I, I want to show you how these two verses about the word of God are directly connected to what he's saying here about making every effort to enter God's rest. Why is such an effort called for? Because if you don't persevere in the faith, if you are unbelieving, your unbelief will be exposed. Look what he says in verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is operative. It, it has the ability to perform, to act. It's not an inanimate object. It is a living organism. 
And it has the ability to penetrate to the very deep, deepest part of every soul and it leaves nothing hidden. It exposes every thought, every motive, every desire. Everything about you will be brought to light by the Word of God. You think you read the Word of God, the Word of God reads you. And everything about you is exposed. Verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. That simply means the word of God exposes everything about you and God's going to see all of it. And what he sees, you're going to give account. Persevere in faith and obedience, because if you lack faith and obedience, you're going to be exposed. You can't hide it. There's going to be no escaping it. The word of God that you have already heard, verse 2, is going to expose you. So diligently persevere in faith and obedience. Let me give you a couple of verses. Hebrews 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You catch that? We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Second Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble for in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our God will be abundantly supplied to you. In what way will entrance into the kingdom be supplied to you? By being more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. Diligence. Diligence. And persevering. And faith. in obedience. Now, I want to say this. It is true that the grace of God that saves us also has the power to keep us. Amen. We believe that, don't we? We believe the grace of God that saves also has the power to keep us. Jude 24, one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. God is able to keep you and he's the only one who's able to keep you. If you could lose your salvation, you would in 10 minutes. So that's a glorious truth. But I need you to hear what I'm fixing to say. This may be the most important thing I say to you all morning. God's keeping grace doesn't absolve you of the responsibility to persevere. It gives you the ability to persevere. I'm going to say that again. That's worth repeating. God's keeping grace does not absolve you of the responsibility to persevere. It gives you the ability to persevere. In other words, you still have to persevere or perish. That's why Peter closes his second letter immediately before his doxology. The last thing he says to the believers is grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Keep on growing, continually be growing, always be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Practically for you and I, 
That means we utilize all the means of grace God has given us. The Word of God. Reading, study, meditating, sitting under the preaching of your pastor. Prayer. The corporate gathering of believers with the fellowship and accountability that comes with that connection and that fellowship. The sacraments. We use all of the means of grace God has given us to help us keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Not being complacent about our spiritual life, but understanding that the call of God is to persevere. It's necessary. Let me try to put all this together for you so you can hear the message in these verses. Here's the whole thing. You ready? Since the promise of entering God's rest remains, avoid falling short of it by diligently persevering in faith and obedience. I'll say it again. This is the whole thing right here. This is why I wanted to deal with all those verses because I want you to hear this whole message. Since the promise of entering God's rest remains, avoid falling short of it by persevering in faith and obedience. Believer, the day's coming. The day's coming when you can take off the armor and you can lay down the sword because that battle with sin and Satan will finally be over. The day is coming when you won't have to expend any more energy and any more effort trying to be like your Savior because he who began the good work in you will finally have completed it. The day's coming. The day's coming when you won't have to pour out any more tears and any more prayers and your efforts to try to make disciples as you, you seek to, to evangelize and edify people. The, the day's coming when that labor will be done. Finally, we'll be at rest. No more stressing. No more straining. No more striving. We will forever delight in God and his works unhindered by sin and corruption. We will glorify and enjoy God forever. A perfect people in a perfect place in the presence of our perfect Lord. I quote another old song, won't it be wonderful there? Please, please don't fall short of it. Keep moving forward in faith, in obedience. Keep fighting against your sin. Keep striving for holiness. Keep trusting God's promises. Utilize all the means of grace that God has given you and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It'll be worth every tear. It'll be worth every trial. So set your mind and your eyes and your heart on things above and keep moving forward with Christ. Keep moving forward for Christ. Keep moving forward in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we, your people, 